All right, good morning, brothers and sisters. I am grateful to the Lord our God for the privilege of preaching the Word of God and the opportunity to meditate upon the truth in the scriptures this morning with you. Pastor Matthew just safely arrived, uh, returned from North Carolina yesterday, but according to the governor's order, anyone traveling from North Carolina must self-quarantine for two weeks. So you are stuck with me this morning. We have a very edifying and uh, refreshing text in front of us today. So without further ado, let, let me pray for us and we'll dive into the text this morning. Let's pray. Father of mercy, you have gathered us here this morning to extol your great and glorious name, to seek Jesus Christ, our only Savior and our Lord. May your will be done now in this hour through the preaching of your word. Let your word enrich the hearts of your people. Teach us your ways, lead us in your truth, and cause our hearts to fear your name. May your word also prevail over unbelief and create new life and new heart in those apart from Christ. I cry out to you for help, for I am the least of your saints. Like Solomon in his youth asked for wisdom, O Lord, now I pray for a double portion of that wisdom now. I pray that you will give unction and anointment from on high to the sermon. Let your truth and your wisdom flow from my heart through my lips to all those who hear right now, I pray. Accomplish your purpose through the preaching of your word, we pray. Amen. The presence of abundant potable liquid water is one of the most essential necessities for life. This is why growing up, uh, I often hear the call to not waste water, which is in many ways is more precious than silver and gold. This is also why almost all the post, in all the post-apocalyptic movies or fictions, you have the same background. Water is almost gone. The earth is covered by sand and desert, and our main character desperately needs to survive. This is why search for water has always been the number one activity in entire human history. It is the most arduous endeavor of the brightest scientists today. We're no longer restricted by gravity. We have now turned our attention even to the heavens. NASA said they have detected traces of water on Mars from a long time ago, and also potential presence of liquid water in, in some moons in our solar system. Space exploration for, for water is but the venture of the last 100 years. So how did humanity solve the water problem before the century? Wells. Instead of going up, we dug down deep into the earth. When water came up, our ancestors joyfully drew water from the depths and enjoyed the fruit of their labors. Where there is well, there is life. But this morning, I want to turn to a passage in the scriptures that elevates this physical reality onto a new spiritual level. Not only your bodies, but also your souls, immortal souls, desperately need water from the wells of salvation. Um, that not only your bodies, but also your soul requires this water to survive and to thrive. The prophet Isaiah wrote, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Well, just consider this wonderful image and metaphor. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Well, therefore, let us savor and meditate and contemplate upon this spiritual truth this morning. So if you have the physical copy of the Bible with you, please turn to the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, which you can find on page 576 of the Pew Bible. Uh, the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 12, will be in verses 1 through 6, which you can also find in your bulletin, Isaiah 12, 1 to 6. Let me read it for you, and this is the word of God. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation, I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, Make known his deeds 
among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. I want to draw your attention to three things in this text. First, we must consider the unpopular concept of the wrath of God, because the text plainly speaks of God's anger and indignation. Why do we have an angry God in the Bible? And who is God angry with? Then we'll take a closer look at this angry God, uh, how this angry God is also a gracious and merciful God who saves us from his wrath against us. And lastly, we'll conclude with our response to the gift of salvation from God. God has done marvelous and wonderful things among us. What ought to be the proper response to all that he has accomplished for our good? So, three very simple points for you this morning. First, the anger of God, then the salvation from God, and lastly, our response to God. I recently heard a piece of advice from an older pastor to younger preachers. Preach what is true, even if it is simple and familiar to your people. That's exactly what I'm going to attempt to do this morning. Many of you probably know everything I'm about to say, but stay with me, and I pray that your heart will be nourished as you draw water from the wells of salvation here today. So let's begin with point number one, the anger of God. The anger of God. To understand the wells of salvation and to draw from it, we must dig deep first through the dirt and the mud before we can get to the water welling up to eternal life. So we must first come to the unpleasant and fearful reality and the doctrine of the wrath of God. Begin with verse 1. Look at verse 1. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. God is, and at least was, angry with us. The late R.C. Sproul wrote in his Christian classic, The Holiness of God, Sermons stressing the fierce wrath of a holy God aimed at impenitent human hearts do not fit with the civic town hall uh, atmosphere of the local church. Gone are the gothic arches. Gone are the stained glass windows. Gone are the sermons that stir the soul to moral anguish. Ours is, a, is an upbeat generation with the accent of self-improvement and a broad-minded view of sin. The wrath of God is probably not something you expected to hear when you walk through the door of our church this morning. But the text in the Bible I just read clearly speaks of God's wrath. We dare not ignore or neglect it. So let us now seek to answer the two questions I just proposed earlier. Why is God angry? Who is he angry with? God is angry because of two realities the Bible plainly teaches. If either of these two realities is not true, then the wrath of God will make no sense. The reason why the modern man has a problem with God's anger is because he does not believe or even agree with either of these two realities. Not only so, the modern man tries his very best to resist challenge and ridicule these two realities that so accurately describe the world we live in. What are these two realities I'm referring to? I am referring to the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. The holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. God's wrath makes no sense if uh, God's wrath makes no sense without these two realities. His wrath only makes sense with these two realities, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. So, number one, the holiness of God. What do I mean when I say God is holy? I mean God is transcendent and different from us. I mean that God is supremely beautiful and gloriously majestic. I mean that God is just and righteous in whom there is no wrongdoings or darkness. God's holiness is the sum of his transcendence and otherness, his splendor and his glory and his purity and justice. These all sound pretty, pretty wonderful. Who doesn't love a God who is highly exalted and different from ourselves? A God who is lovely 
and a God who is beautiful, a God who is just and does no wrong? How is God's holiness, which sounds wonderful to us, related to his wrath? First, God's holiness and his transcendence and otherness means that God's wrath is very much different from the anger of man. His holiness and his transcendence and otherness means God's wrath is very much different from the anger of man. Man's anger often originates from fits of passion and the overflow of emotions. But God's anger is deeply grounded and rooted in his character and nature, which are unchanging and immutable. God is not overcome by anger like us. God actively does his anger. As a result, man's anger wears off as overwhelming emotions fade away. However, God's wrath never vanishes or diminishes against those who he is angry with. The, the anger of man is transient, but the wrath of God is everlasting against unrepentant sinners. Jonathan Edwards wrote, If it were only the wrath of man, Though it were of the most potent prince, it would be comparatively little to be regarded. The wrath of the great king of kings is as much uh, more terrible than theirs as his, his majesty is greater. Furthermore, God's holiness and beauty and splendor means that his wrath has a purpose. And that purpose is to magnify his own glory and display his great majesty and power. When man gets angry, he is often regarded as a hot-headed or quick-tempered fool. In most cases, anger is not a virtue, but a sin to be shunned. But it is not so with the wrath of God. For God, his wrath shows forth his infinite goodness and infinite power. When the people of God gather around the throne of God at the end of the ages, they will praise God and worship him for his judgment and wrath and power. How can this be? Sounds morbid. How can this be true? It is because of the third component of, in God's holiness. God's holiness and justice and righteousness means that his wrath is not arbitrary or whimsical, but is deeply founded upon his uncompromisable justice and immutable hatred towards sin. God is angry not because he somehow gained some guilty pleasure from losing it, a God is angry because the world he created and fashioned in his goodness and perfection has been corrupted and stained by wrongdoings and iniquities. God is angry because of the shedding of innocent blood, whether it is under the knee of a brutal murder or in an abortion clinic. God is angry because of the defilement of the sacred covenant of marriage, which he has instituted only for a man and a woman to enter for their, for their good and his glory. God is angry because of unbelief. Despite of his fatherly and tender calling, so many in this world still despise his son, reject the truth, and go on their own ways. God is angry because he is holy in righteousness and justice, which leads us to the second reality, the sinfulness of man. God delights in righteousness and hates all evil. However, if there has been no evil in this world, then God would not have, have not been angry toward man. There would be no, nothing to be angry at with a just and righteous reason. Where his words are not broken, there is no wrath from God. But sadly, as the scripture teaches, none is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, God is rightly angry because we're all sinners. God's wrath is, is against us for our original sin. Original sin does not refer to the first time you ever sinned against God. Original sin. It refers to our sinful nature. We're sinful before God since the very origin of our lives, thus original sin. Growing up in China, I was taught at a very early age that we were all good in nature. The school required us to memorize a literature classic which begins with the following words, saying, Man's beginning, our nature was good. The characters are similar, but our giftings are different. But the teachers frequently told us children are like a piece of white paper. It is up to us to draw good or evil. Well, as much as they are well-intentioned, 
These words are simply not what the Bible teaches. Uh, Our first parents, Adam and Eve, willfully broke God's command and rebelled against his rule. The moment they sinned against God, they not only affected their own souls, but all who would come after them. We inherited a sinful nature from them at the very, very beginning. Just as we saw last week in the sermon, Romans 5, 12, sin came into the world through one man, and one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. Calvin wrote in the Institutes, Original sin, a hereditary corruption and depravity of nature extending to all the parts of the soul, makes us obnoxious to the wrath of God. God is angry with us for our original sin. Our sinful nature is not the only thing that provokes God. God's wrath is against us for our actual acts of sin. We not only have a sinful nature from the womb, and that sinful nature also bore the actual fruit of sin through our lives. Jesus said, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. The sinful nature within us naturally brings forth sin and evil in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. And this then solves our question of who is God angry with, or at least who was God angry with. If God hates sin and all sinners for their sins, and all have a nature of corruption and a wickedness since birth, then all must be sinners, and we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not convinced that we're all sinners? Did not expect someone to tell you that you are a sinner under the wrath of God this morning? Let me just read for you a passage. The passage we read earlier this morning. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. When this passage says we are foolish and disobedient, it refers to our sins against God in unbelief and distrust. When it says we are led astray, astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, including all the vanities, drunkenness, immoral sexual pleasures, and selfish ambition we pursue, it refers to our sins against ourselves. And when it says we pass our days in malice and envy, hating one another, it refers to our sins against others. If all of us could honestly, humbly, untruthfully examine ourselves and evaluate our own souls, we could not but confess we are all sinners who have sinned against God, our maker and creator, against ourselves whose souls are more valuable than all the riches of the world, and against others who bear the same image of God as we do. The Apostle Paul wrote, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You and I, we're all sinners that deserve the fiercest fury and indignation of the Holy God. Now, there are two things about God's wrath against sinners I want to highlight. First, the first thing, the wrath of God is dreadful. The wrath of God is dreadful. This is not the wrath of your parents uh, when you failed a school test, or the wrath of your supervisor when you made a mistake at work. This is the wrath of the infinitely holy God whose eyes are too pure to behold iniquities and whose heart is too perfect to tolerate any offense. Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Erman Bavink wrote, The wrath is terrible, inspires dread, brings pain, punishment, and destruction. Puritan Ralph Benning uh, concurs, It is terrifying a thing to fall into the hands of the living God when he acts like a God of vengeance. How dreadful a thing then would it be to be in hell itself under the tortures of his executed wrath forever. I've heard some people think, Uh, Hell is just a party of pleasure where God giving men whatever they want, whatever they they are pleased with. Nothing is further from the truth. God's wrath is infinitely dreadful than we could ever imagine. Flatter not yourself. 
that there could be even a sense of pleasantness in God's fury against sinners for their sins. However, there is something else about God's wrath that could bring us much hope. Go back to the text, verse 1. Verse 1 again, Isaiah 12, 1. For though you are angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. In other words, though God's wrath is fearful and dreadful, God's wrath could be turned away. Well, Psalm 30, verse 5, his, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And again, Isaiah 54, 7 to 8, For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. Some of you are here today justified and redeemed by Christ, united with him as one in the spirit, called by him as his beloved children, sons and daughters in his household. Yet, you frequently feel that God is angry with you. Maybe you have done this wrong or accidentally provoked God, who is now burning in fury against you. Maybe you think you do not know God as you ought to, and so he is dreadfully upset at you. Maybe you have sinned a grievous sin against God, but you, by God's grace, have been convicted in the conscience and the heart and have come to repentance and confession. But still, your heart, your heart is still afflicted by a lingering fear and a terror for God's rage and indignation. Is that you? Are you afraid of God? Are you afraid of God's anger if you are in Christ? Remember this verse, brothers and sisters. Remember this verse. For though you are angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. God is not a grumpy and frustrated father who punishes his own children for every little error they make. He is a loving and gracious father who takes delight in his children, full of truth and grace, patiently directing and maturing in them. Remember his compassion, mercy, and great comfort to you. However, some of you are here today, apart from Jesus Christ, but you presume that God is dealing with you kindly and he is not angry with you at all. I must bluntly and plainly tell you, you are mistaken. If I have been fair with my interpretation of the word of God, that the holy God is furiously provoked by unrepentant sinners who slight his mercy and despise his grace, then the wrath of God remains on you. I preach God's wrath against sinners, not because I am exhilarated about it, I'm excited about it, I reap some pleasures from it. No, I preach the wrath of God because it's true. It is what the Bible teaches, and it is the greatest danger you're facing right now. God is now only threatening with his words, admonishing and warning you with the scriptures, with his people, with the preaching of the sermons. But before he puts his words to threat, uh, his words of threat into actions, I pray that you will be awakened this morning to the danger of your souls, the danger that you're facing. If you are, I encourage you, as we have just established, the wrath of God can be turned away. How? How can the wrath of God be turned away? Point number two, the salvation from God. Point number two, the salvation from God. God's wrath is upon sinners for their sins. How can we be saved and delivered from it? Verse one, you will say on that day, drop down to verse two, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Verse 3, with joy and you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In other words, God himself is our salvation from his own wrath against our sins. God is our salvation from his own wrath against our sins. First of all, you will say on that day, verse 1, you will say on that day, 
That implies that our salvation and redemption is the definitive plan of God. There is a day God has foreknown and set apart specifically so that he can accomplish the work of saving sinners from their sins. And not only so, when sinners are saved by his grace through Jesus Christ our Lord, he also knows what we will say as words of gratitude and thankfulness to him. He has not only set apart a day for sinners to be saved, but also put in our mouths songs of praises for him who saved us. And therefore, our salvation is a definitive and certain plan of God before the foundation of the world, both in terms of its timing and its outcome. Furthermore, notice the wording of verse one, verses 1 and 3. You will say in that day. In what day? What day is he talking about? We're jumping into the middle of the book of Isaiah, so we need some context to help us understand what, what day Isaiah is referring to. The current section of Isaiah begins all the way back with chapter 7, Isaiah 7. Here is some of the context. context. Ahaz was the king of Judah. In fact, he, is, he was the most wicked king in Judah's history. The northern kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria formed this alliance to attack Judah's capital, which is Jerusalem. So Ahaz was afraid. So he went to seek the counsel and the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah responded uh, by saying two things, essentially. On one hand, God will protect Judah, his people, by scattering the Israeli and Syrian army. But on the other hand, the second thing, God has prepared an even more terrifying and powerful enemy to overthrow Judah for their sins in the near future. Judah will be exiled and carried away from their homeland far away to, to Babylon. Judah will be secure from the crisis at hand from the Israeli-Assyrian army, but eventually they will pay the price of their sins. Again, it's the wrath of God against sinners for their unfaithfulness and their idolatry. However, that's not all. Exile is not the end of the story. There is good news. What's the good news? The good news is in that day. In that day is the good news. Isaiah 10.20 In that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of the house of Jacob, will no more lean on him who struck them, but lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. And again, Isaiah 11.10 In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. In other words, the day Isaiah is referring to here in Isaiah 12 is the day on which the remnant of God's people will return to him from their exiles. Do you see the parallel now? Judah sinned against God and was exiled, but on that day they will return to their God. We have also sinned against God and was cu were cut off from his presence and grace. But in that day, God will save us and bring us back to him again. That is called salvation. We have sinned, but God reconciles us back to him. And now, the question is, how did the remnant of Judah return? And how are we to return to God from sin and wrath? Uh, there are two prominent figures in the book of Isaiah. And putting them together basically form the picture of our salvation. Who are these two prominent figures in Isaiah? The righteous branch and the suffering servant. The turning away of God's wrath is by the righteous branch and the suffering servant. So let's consider them more closely. Number one, the righteous branch. Just a page to your left to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. On the day the remnant returns, something else will also happen. Isaiah eleven ten. In that day, same day, what will happen? In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as the signal for the peoples, 
Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Move further back to Isaiah 11, verse 1. This man is not only the root of Jesse, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his shoots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In other words, God will raise up a man from the descendants of Jesse, who is the father of King David, a man filled with the Holy Spirit to deliver his people from their sins and the wrath of God. How is this branch or descendant of David going to save us? The prophet Jeremiah gave us a clear answer. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 33, 15. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. So two things. First, this branch, this righteous branch, the descendant of David is God himself. He will be called by the name, he is the Lord or Yahweh our righteousness. This is no mere man, this branch, but this branch is the God-man truly God and truly man. Also, this righteous God man will give us his righteousness. He is the Lord, Yahweh, our righteousness. You all know who this God man I'm referring to. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in the flesh, assumed the human nature. He walked among us in perfect righteousness without trace nor stain of sin. He was not only himself righteous, but he is making all those who come to him and trust in him righteous as well. He who is starved will not be satisfied until food is served to him. He who thirsts will not be content until water quenches his thirst. Sinners who have no righteousness of their own cannot rest until the perfect righteousness of another is freely bestowed upon him as a free gift. There is no greater news for sinners under the wrath of God than Jesus Christ, perfect righteousness counted as theirs. We need the righteous branch to make us acceptable to the holy God by giving us his own, his very righteousness. The righteous branch saves. He is our savior. That's number one, the righteous branch. Number two, the second prominent figure in Isaiah is the suffering servant the suffering servant. The righteous branch is a man who is filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. There is another man in the book of Isaiah upon whom God will seal his spirit. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This is the servant of God who is also perfectly righteous before God, obedient toward him. He said in Isaiah 55, turn there if you can, Isaiah 50, verse 5. Just, you know, several pages to your right. Isaiah 50, verse 5. It says, The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. If you trace the, you know, the description of an open year throughout the scriptures in the, New Testament, in the Old Testament and New, you know that an open year signifies the obedience and the righteousness of the person. And th this man is not rebellious. The servant of God do not, does not turn backward. However, the servant ordained and chosen by God is not only perfectly righteous and just, there is something else about him. Continue Isaiah 50, verse 6. Just one verse down. Isaiah verse, uh, 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. 
This servant is not only righteous, the servant of God is also a suffering servant. Why does God put his own chosen servant, his ordained servant, to such humiliation and suffering? You all know Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, unafflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The suffering servant suffered not for any wrongs he had done, because he is perfectly righteous. He suffered for us, our sins, transgressions against God's holiness and his glory. The wrath of God that should have been unleashed upon us sinners who rightly deserved it was afflicted upon him. He stood in our place and endured the wrath that we should have deserved. That's how the wrath of God could be turned away because it was unleashed upon another. He is our substitute and he is our representative. And guess what? The suffering servant and the righteous branch are the same person, Jesus Christ. In his life, he was sinless. In his death, he voluntarily, willingly, and joyfully stood, stood in our place so that our sins may be forgiven and the wrath of God may be turned away. Our souls may be purified and our lives may be redeemed and purchased and reconciled to God himself. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. This is what Christianity is about. This is what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Sinful men reconciled to the holy God by the righteous, the spotless righteousness and the substitutionary atonement of the God-man, Jesus Christ, the righteous branch and the suffering servant on our behalf. But that's not all. For all those who are in Christ Jesus this morning and delivered from the wrath of God, he has prepared manifold of blessings to you through Jesus. After establishing the glorious doctrine of the justification by faith alone in Romans 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul proceeded to number the blessings of the justified in Christ in Romans 5. So now let's do the same. As we have established the righteous branch and the suffering servant as our Savior from God's anger, and let's name our blessings through Christ Jesus according to our text here in Isaiah 12. Blessing number one. Courage and strength. Blessing number one, courage and strength. Verse two, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust, I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. The Lord our God is our courage and our strength. The society we live in is characterized by fear. Each generation has its own fear. We feared a nuclear threat from the Soviet Union a long time ago. We feared infiltration of terrorism. We feared global warming and the rising of sea level. We feared financial crisis and economic recession. We feared a violation of privacy by the technology in our pockets. We feared a pandemic which rapidly spread to all the earth. Are you also characterized by fear? Are you afraid of losing your job? Are you afraid of sickness? Or disease? Are you afraid of trials and hardships of life? Are you afraid of death? Now, here is your blessing in Christ Jesus. The Lord God will be your courage and your strength. If he has delivered you from the most fearful and dreadful wrath of God, how much more will he be able to strengthen you, renew you, and encourage you in the time of need? Even the greatest enemy, death, has been transformed by our Savior to be a pathway leading to eternal and everlasting life. Brothers and sisters, remember, I will trust and I will not be afraid. Blessing number two, joy and comfort. Blessing number two, joy and comfort. Verse one, your anger turn away that you might comfort me. Verse three, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. 
Verse 6, shout, I sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. There is a deeply settled and unwavering joy in the heart of a Christian because the greatest trouble of his life has been perfectly and irrevocably solved. This joy is independent of our circumstances because our salvation is independent of circumstances. Because the spirit of joy lives in us independent of our circumstances. Because the wells of salvation are given to us independent of our circumstances. Brethren, are you heavy laden and weary? Are you cast down in the soul as you run this race, fight the fight of faith, and walk on the difficult path and the narrow way? Remember Paul's words. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In the deepest sorrow, remember and hold fast to the unshakable source of your joy, the salvation and the eternal security of your souls. Blessing number three, access and presence. Verse verse six, finally made it beyond verse three. Verse six, shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. God is always in the midst of his people that bear his name. He was with our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. He was with Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, and he was with the kingdom of Judah in the temple in Jerusalem for generations. In the same way, his presence is now with the church and with every single believer. Uh, We have access to God by the new and the living way that Christ opened before us through his flesh and blood. However, the difference is God's presence was withdrawn from Adam, Eve, Israel, and Judah because of their sins. He hid his face from them. He turned away from them. But the presence of God will never be permanently taken away from us. When the new heaven and the new earth comes, God will announce, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We'll enjoy the immediate presence of of, and the clear access to God forever. Remember this blessing as you look forward to the day of redemption. Just to summarize, our riches and blessings through the salvific work of the righteous branch and the suffering servants are courage and strength in every trial, joy and comfort in every bitter morning, access and presence of God in all eternity. Now that God has done so wonderfully for us, uh, what shall we do as a response? Let's briefly conclude with point number three, our response to God, our response to God. I prepared four responses from the text as applications for you this morning. Response number one, frequent the wells of salvation. Frequent the wells of salvation. The metaphor of water and well for salvation is very, very instructive. We need water to survive, and we need water daily to survive. Therefore, we must also daily or frequently go to the wells of salvation to draw from them. To draw from them. In the exact same way, we must come to this well to be renewed and refreshed in the heart daily. How do we come to the wells of salvation? Well, it's simply beginning our days by immersing ourselves in the fountain of truth, the word of God. Take a verse or two with you to meditate upon it, treasure it, memorize it, and practice it throughout the day. The harvest of righteousness requires the continual irrigation of the word of God to our souls. In addition to the word of God, we must also pray. A pray, uh, pray with great urgency and desperation, not with formality or pretenses. Pray like our lives depend on it. The psalmist wrote, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. 
God's presence is the fountain of life, and prayer is the key to unlock it. A prayerful man is a heavenly man, and a prayerful man is the happiest man, because he is the one who reaps strength, joy, and blessings in every season of life. Prayerlessness is such a plague upon the church at this present time. I pray that you and our church would not consider it a waste of time. Pour out your souls to God daily in prayer. May that be the beginning of your day and your mornings. Response number two: Give thanks and praises to our God. Response number two: Give thanks and praises to our God. Verse one: I will give thanks to you. Verse two: The Lord God is my strength and my song. Verse four: Give thanks to the Lord. Verse five: Sing praises to the Lord. Verse six: Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. The Christian life is marked by an incessant thanksgiving and praises to God. Paul concurs: Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. In the midst of a culture and a people full of complaints, discontentment, and grumbling, we Christians are called to be completely different. We are saved and redeemed to be a humble people, knowing that it is not by ourselves, but the righteous branch and the suffering servant that we are given a newness of life. We are saved and redeemed to be a thankful people, giving glory to God, which He rightly deserves. We are saved and redeemed to praise the Lord our God for, as verse five says, He has done gloriously. Like prayerlessness, thanklessness is also a plague upon the church. Should we be surprised that God does little through the church when the church is so ungrateful and unthankful to Him? Why should God do much for His people when they only take it for granted? Does not our heavenly Father more? For the ingratitude toward Him, it is not enough for us to come to church every Sunday and sing a few hymns to God. Pastor Mike gave me a very practical direction to cultivate a more thankful and grateful heart. Every day, whenever I encounter a frustrating and complaint-inducing situation, I'll make I'll make two lists: a list of good things that God is bringing about through this frustrating and complaint-inducing situation. A list of bad things and less ideal things in this situation. Think hard on it. Write it on a piece of paper and compare the two lists. As you look at your list of the good and the bad, you'll always find more reasons to thank and praise God. The list of the good is always longer than the list of the bad. Brethren, remember the righteous branch and the suffering servant, so that our hearts will be overflowing with thankfulness and gratitude. To our God, that's response two: praise and thank our God. Response number three: make known God's name and deeds among the peoples. Make known God's name and deeds among the peoples. Verse four: make known His deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that His name is exalted. Verse five: sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. We who have come and tasted the steadfast love and the boundless grace of our heavenly Father should not hesitate to make it known to those around us. I love books. Whenever I finish reading a book from which I have benefited much, I'm more than excited to tell people about it because I want others to reap great blessings from it as well. I also recently started loving eating Popeyes. I love their spicy fried chicken sandwich. So whenever people come to me for Popeyes recommendation, I'm more than excited to recommend you the spicy chicken sandwich because I personally have enjoyed it so much. I want you to enjoy that deliciousness as well. In the same way, God has saved us, adopted us as His children, and loved us with an everlasting love. Should we not desire others to come and partake in the blessings of the gospel of the righteous branch and the suffering servant? I pray that we will not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Last response, response four: Come to the wells of salvation. Come to the wells of salvation. This is a response 
for those of you that are apart from Jesus Christ this morning. Consider how much Jesus Christ has done for you in mercy and in love as a righteous branch and a suffering servant for your soul's sake. Come to the wells of salvation. This well is life-giving. Jesus once said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will, I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Therefore, come to the wells of salvation and drink the water of eternal life from Jesus. This well is also free of charge. You need not do anything to win his favor, nor pay any, anything for salvation. Only come with a repentant heart and a contrite spirit. Jesus said, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. This well of salvation is also near you. Today you have heard of this well. It is not very far from you at all. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Hesitate no more. Come to the wells of salvation and drink the living water unto everlasting life. Let's pray. Lord our God, you have opened a great fountain of eternal life before us. From there, we can draw water welling up to everlasting life, to your presence, to the fullness of joy, of love, and blessings. I pray, Lord, that you will enable your children, create in us willing hearts to frequent this well daily. And I pray that we'll reap much benefits for our souls, that we may come to behold and to understand and to know you and how much you have done for us. You have not uh, chosen us to suffer wrath, but you have willed and elected us to be delivered and to be saved in Christ Jesus, to be yours, to be your people. So help us to remember you. Remember the wonderful and marvelous things you have done in each and every one of us here today. And I pray, Lord, you will take these feeble words of mine, these weak uh, unable speech of mine to create new heart, to create new spirits, new life in those who are not in Christ Jesus right now. I pray that you will receive much glory. You will be much magnified and praised through the salvation of sinners, I pray. Make us a thankful people to be grateful to you at all times. Touch our silent lips, O Lord. Place upon our tongues a song of praise unto you who are seated upon the throne of the kingdom of heaven, that you will be exalted above all things. Lord, we're looking forward to the day we will dwell in your presence. I pray that you will come quickly. Come soon, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.